Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning, it's Tuesday 8th of March. This is Alan Cantwell standing in for Michael on the Michael Reed Show. On the programme this morning, the Ukrainian refugee crisis. Are we prepared to deal with the tens of thousands expected to arrive in the coming weeks and months? It's International Women's Day. Why do we consistently fail to meet the needs of women when it comes to childcare, flexibility in the workplace and support and recognition for the pivotal role they play in business and society in general? The number of families contacting the Vincent de Paul is on the increase. In fact, it's up 30% on the same period last year. And the wait continues for orthodontic treatment as the number of consultants can't keep up with demand. You're very welcome to the programme. Now, the Taoiseach confirmed that in the region of 1,800 Ukrainian refugees have arrived in Ireland so far, 486 of whom arrived over the weekend. Michal Martin said at about two-thirds of arrivals have connections with families in Ireland, but that number is decreasing. It's a matter that will be discussed at Cabinet this morning. The Irish Red Cross is already in discussions with the Irish Refugee Protection Programme regarding the accommodation for refugees from Ukraine. And joining us this morning to discuss what measures will need to be put in place to deal with the numbers of refugees making their way to Ireland is the General Secretary of the Irish Red Cross, Liam O'Dwyer. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning, Alan. Is it possible at this point to establish the exact number of refugees that will be coming to Ireland? Because it's... You know, if you listen to one figure, it's 20,000. Another figure says 80. Another figure says more, perhaps, than 100,000. Where are we with the numbers? Um, well, I don't think it's possible to establish it, uh, to be honest with you. I think in the past, um, when people were brought in as, as refugees under protection programmes, there was a, a number agreed by the government, and those uh, that, that number agreed was brought in and was met at the airport and brought to reception centres and then moved into Irish society from there by the likes of ourselves. So that, that, that is what has happened in the past. OK, well, well, perhaps... This, this, is, this is fluid. This is very yeah. different because nobody has actually the, 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 the sort of the figure. Mm. If, um, if I could ask the question maybe in another way, and you'd probably be uh, best placed yeah. to answer it, How many refugees do you think we can adequately deal with in order to give them the support, the housing and the infrastructure that's required? 
Well, I'd love to be able to answer that question, but I, Alan, I, co- I couldn't answer that question. I mean, because it's about, it's, it's, it's what resources is government prepared to throw at this? That really is, this is a resource issue. We have a pledge database, and we set this up a number of years ago when our uh, friends from Syria were coming here, and we received a thousand applications over a period of a couple of months, and that, that was fantastic, and that, that was a lot of work, but it worked very well. Um, in four days, we have received over 4,000 mm-hmm. applications in relation to people who are pledging property. And I, I think that, that says, tells you something that this is something much bigger. It's much bigger in the Irish people's imagination, too, because they are totally committed to it. Okay. And that's evident. So what we have to do now is respond to that. And we're, we're ringing each of those people but you can do the maths in that because that's a, that's a huge number of telephone calls. It is, and I mean, Liam, the template as such is in place there, but the significant is, yeah. numbers that will be um, coming to this country will be just... It will be difficult to deal with in terms of processing the number of applications from Irish citizens who want to help, and I would imagine that will be in its tens of thousands. So explain to us the process whereby, for example, I register interest on the site yeah. to say I want to take in maybe uh, a family of three people. Where do we go yeah. from, from there? Okay, well, when the, your interest is registered, uh, we will contact you. So we'll have someone call, call you, actually. And just to verify the, the, the information, to verify the, uh, the type of property, because that's, that's, uh, and also to verify the timescale, because um, normally we look for people to make a, a six-month or a year-long commitment and what that means is that it gives the, the family time to settle in, the new family. And then from there, obviously, they move into Irish society themselves mm-hmm. over a period of time. And that's what we support. So we support that. Now, is so, there a vetting process in play to establish the bona fides of somebody like me who wants to participate in this scheme that, you know, I, you couldn't expect guard the vetting to happen because that will no. just take too long and it will be too complex. But there has to be some form of vetting, surely. Yeah, well, there's firstly the vetting on the phone because uh, you find out what's available, first of all, from the person and the length of time. So that will tell you if someone is, uh, if someone is saying, look, what I have is a couch uh, and no more and people are, and a person is welcome to come, that, that's a fine offer. But there are going to be other offers which, is, which are going to say, look, I have an apartment or a house or, or two or three rooms in a house or a room in the house. Mm-hmm. And so what we have to do is prioritise yeah, well, where I think I was coming from, Liam, with the question is in relation to the individual, yeah. as in yeah. establishing if yeah. they are an upstanding citizen, that there is nothing nefarious in what they are engaging in. Uh, there's, a, there's a judgment call has to be made at that. There is no other way of doing that. We don't have a, a guard the vetting process. Mm-hmm. Um, what we have is that we, we then ask one of our own members um, or indeed, we bring people in to assist us with this, and they call to the house just to just to meet the meet okay. the family first, and then to say, well, they'll come back to us and say, yes, look, that's a, that's a go, and then we then would introduce the uh, the Ukrainian family uh, to them, and we bring them together. So, so that that really is the process. Mm-hmm. But and I suppose uh, people are going to have to be patient with this because. For a thousand people, it was complex enough, but for four and a, four and a half thousand people, which is what it's looking at like at the moment, that's, uh, that's a fair bit of contacting uh-huh. and uh, bringing people with us. Right, let's take it to the next stage that we have a family that has been uh, paired up, as it were, with um, an Irish family and they're living 
under the same roof. Yeah. It strikes me that there will be a huge degree of support required, particularly from younger members of the families coming from the Ukraine, because if you look at the pictures and look at the news footage, the sheer terror that those children must be going through as a result of the murderous campaign by Putin will have profound psychological effects on them. So that has to be taken into consideration. And there has to be some sort of a support mechanism there for the psychological impact on those children. Will they have support? Well, the support that is there is that we have caseworkers, then professional caseworkers. And we're not the only agency involved in this. We're very lucky to have the Irish Refugee Council um, and NASC and a number of others. And we'll break this up per uh, geographical region. And then so our caseworkers then will introduce the, the two families together. And uh, our caseworkers will offer support to the Ukrainian family. Um, and that's when an assessment of needs would be done, you know, what supports are going to be need, needed for that family. Um, the Red Cross themselves, we have psychosocial counsellors, and we can obviously uh, refer there, but we can also refer into the state infrastructure, yeah. um, uh, the psychological uh, support services. I think, though, Liam, you hit the nail on the head in your opening comments when you said it's a matter of what the government is prepared to throw at this, because there's only a certain level of support systems in play at the moment, and that will require multiples of what is there to deal with this situation, surely. Yes, I think so. Um, I think that certainly would be my assessment of it. it is, uh, this is a, a, a huge undertaking um, and I know the government are looking at the type of resources that uh, they're going to need to put in play and the type of resources they'll have to give the likes of the Red Cross to actually to carry this out because we're, we're ultimately a very small organisation um, and so we will need to bring in resources then to enable us to deliver. What happens, Liam, six months down the road when it transpires that, you know, the family that has arrived from Ukraine and the Irish family may not be getting on too well and it may get a little bit tense under the one roof? Where do we go from, from there in situations such as that? And I presume it does happen. Oh, it does, yeah. And I mean, look, I'd say, if I can say this to you, the vast bulk of what we organise, say, with the Afghani population and with uh, the, the Syrian people who came here, um, they, they formed tremendous bonds mm-hmm. and worked extremely well. But the, 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 there, were, there were obviously difficulties and those difficulties had to be dealt with head on. So that was a question then of our caseworker going, meeting the two parties and uh, if the Irish family wanted the, the, the house back because this wasn't working out, yeah. we would arrange that. And, and, and you move from there, I know it sounds awful, but you, you simply move from there into... A B&B or private, private rented until the um, the family is settled in the in the place where where they're going to live for for a much longer term. And I mean that's going to be, I suppose, one of the unusual things about this is that this is a situation where you will have a lot of Ukrainian Ukrainian people who come here. This is my conjecture, anyway, um, and they will want to go home. So they are looking for safe a safe haven, safe harbour. Um, and ultimately they will want to, to, to go back. But we have no time frame on that for very obvious reasons. Of course. But presumably the end game here will be one of two situations. One, that things settle and get sorted in Ukraine and families can return to their families over yeah. there who are still there. Or number two, if they wish to stay in Ireland and establish themselves here in a new country and a new life. 
But to do that, again, requires a lot of joined up thinking and a lot of work on the part of the government. In terms of lessons learned in the past from Afghanistan and other refugee crises, what lessons can we bring to this from your own perspective? Um, I think the, well, the, the, the actual first lesson that we have learned from this time is that now that we have people who have offered their accommodation, we need to engage with them immediately. And in fact, we already have a team of people from three and the web summit who have devoted their time and they are phoning uh, all of our pledgers so the very first thing is to go to our uh, irish pledgers to say listen thank you and uh let's get just let's verify your information so that's the first piece the second piece then is to make certain that we have caseworkers who are able to engage with our friends from ukraine uh, and to just to assess what their needs are in terms of where they're going to live is it a shared accommodation or is it a, what we call a standalone, in other words, a, an apartment or a house? So I think they're the critical pieces. Mm. Then once, once I suppose it, the, the situation has evolved after six months or a year, generally people move out of a pledged accommodation and they move either into what's known as, I suppose, social house, a local authority house, or they move into the private rented sector. Um, and we uh, and we facilitate that as we can. If I may, Liam, just maybe concentrate a little bit on what is happening on the ground out there, and I, pres- I suppose you're probably best placed more than any to get an understanding of what really is going on in terms of the contacts you have out there. Just how desperate is the situation? Because we see the pictures, and they're almost unbelievable to watch and to look at in the newspapers. Oh, it's horrific. Uh, it really is, because uh, I think what our the Ukraine Red Cross would say that what they're dealing with at the moment would be a lot of very frightened people who are hiding basically under buildings uh, and uh, with food and water running out, with electricity uh, affected. And so they're trying to bring whatever support and medical help, I suppose the Red Cross would specialise in that anyway, um, to these people. And then there's older people, people who who simply can't move out of where they are and they need also to be to be cared for but it's a, it's a hugely frightening situation because um buildings uh, buildings are being bombed and you have you've no sense of security at all you've no sense of your own security and then those who can move are moving uh, in huge numbers to the borders in Poland and Hungary and Slovakia in particular and Moldova. So, so that is uh, happening and I suppose the Red Cross then would be on the borders with mm. um, refugee well, camps for, for want of a better word. And I suppose what's unusual about this scenario is that so many people in particular through Slovakia and through uh, Poland are actually moving on through Europe. And that is what's unusual about this. Um, We haven't seen that before. Uh, Liam, before I let you go, I just want to talk a little bit about um, help and donations from from Irish citizens. We we have read and seen so many stories about, you know, haulage companies taking provisions out to uh, the bordering countries of Ukraine. Is that a wise thing to do or should we be just sending money to allow the authorities there to use it as best they can to deal and target with the evolving situation as opposed to sending goods out? Well, I mean, I, I suppose I can't talk about what other, what other people do, but what I, what I can say is that from a Red Cross perspective, um, uh, we would prefer people to, 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 send, uh, to, to make a donation of cash 
because what we do with that is we move that directly out mm-hmm. to the Ukraine Red Cross or to the, the Polish Red Cross, etc. So it goes directly on the ground and they know precisely what they need. They know the standards of what they need and they're able to purchase that. So we just need to resource them. Uh, people are very generous. They really are. They have contributed over 13 million euros at this stage. And that's only in a week and a half. It's, it's like it's astonishing. Um, from the people of Ireland and from the, the, the business community. Um, okay. But, I mean, other people are going out with trucks and it shows the generosity and the innovation of Irish people. Very good. Liam, just before I go, um, I presume everything is up and running and is working um, technically <laughs> smoothly so far in terms of <laughs> trying to register interest online, is it? Yes, well, my IT colleague has just come into the room, having worked all night. Uh, you, you see, I, I suppose part of this is that this, this was set up for a, a much smaller uh, cohort of people. And suddenly, um, instead, as I mentioned earlier on, we had this vast influx of information coming in, which it's not that the thing broke down, but in fact, it just slowed down uh, and was nearly inoperable. So people stayed up last night to actually to work on it to make certain that it's up and running today, which it is. Okay, great stuff, Liam. Thanks for that. That's um, General Secretary of the Irish Red Cross, Liam O'Dwyer. Now, we were talking about support. We're talking about sending out whatever we can to the refugees, to the people who have been displaced in Ukraine as a result of this conflict. You listen to Liam there. The best thing that we can do is make a donation. Now, we here at LMFM and other stations around the country, independent radio stations, I've got together and we were commencing an appeal and it's very easy to do. Go on to our website, lmfm.ie, www.lmfm.ie. You will see the process whereby you can make a donation, any donation at all, no matter how small it is, will have an impact and will help the refugees out there. So please help us here in LMFM to help the people of Ukraine. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Good morning. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined us, it's Alan Cantwell in for Michael Reid for the rest of the week. Now, let's stay with um, Ukraine, but uh, let's bring it a little bit closer to home. Russian ambassador and his staff are no longer welcome in this country and should be asked to leave by the government immediately. That call was made as Oireachtas members prepared to hold a demonstration outside the embassy in Dublin later this morning. Yesterday, the embassy condemned what it called a criminal act of insanity after a truck was reversed through the gates of the embassy. Finnegal spokesperson on European Affairs, Neil Richmond, says the ambassador and his entire team should be expelled. Deputy, good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. He talks about a criminal act of insanity. That's a bit rich coming from him, is it not, considering what his president is doing in the Ukraine? I mean, there surely can be no option now, but for somebody such as the Taoiseach or the Taunusa, regardless of the importance or otherwise of having representation in Russia to say enough, get out of this country. Absolutely. I think the time is long past for the Russian ambassador and not just the ambassador, but his team of 31 diplomats to be expelled from this country. What's really worrying in this, Alan, is that Russia, for some reason, has two military attaches in this country. and The British government only has one military attaché, and we have much more to do with them on defence matters. Only a couple of years ago, we expelled a number of Russian diplomats at the time of this poisoning in Salisbury. There has been a number of very worrying activities around the embassy, which is located in my own constituency in Dublin, in relation to suspects 
to applications for planning and various bits of construction work. I think it's right now that we see the ambassador expelled. And whilst I do condemn the unfortunate accident yesterday where someone deliberately reversed into the gates of the embassy, it is nothing to compare to the murder and slaughter that's currently happening in Ukraine. And to listen to some of the language that the Russian ambassador used in his statement of condemnation, it's absolutely galling. We have a situation where thousands of women children are being bombed out of their homes that the Russia is using cluster bombs. Vladimir Putin is committing war mm. crimes. It's nothing compared to a broken gate. Can I just go back to the comments that you made around the embassy? Are you saying that it's in essence a clearing house for clandestine activities on the part of the Russian authorities? Is that what you're saying? Well, I have very strong suspicions. Um, as I said, a number of diplomats were suspended a couple of years ago as they're suspected to be linked to the poisoning, the Russian state-sponsored poisoning in Salisbury of agents, uh, Salisbury in England. Then what we saw recently, only a couple of years ago, is the government had to make a direct intervention to stop construction at the Russian embassy of suspect areas. Now, I can't go into the details, but there is belief that these were communications um, facilities. Ireland would be a very obvious place for the Russians to have a a so-called listening post, be it for um, communications between the US and the EU, the US and the UK, the UK and the EU, and Ireland as well. Okay, we have, as you have listened to the likes of the Taunus and the Taoiseach putting forward a defence in order to keep the Russian ambassador here for purposes of opening some channels of dialogue, should we, should an Irish citizen find themselves in a situation in Russia that they need some sort of help? Because if we get rid of the Russian guy, the Irish guy has gone out of Russia and we've no representation there. But in reality, if we look at what is going on, this man Putin is in breach of more than one sections of the Geneva Convention, but yet we still entertain him being here. What is it going to take, Deputy? Well, I think there was an appetite, and when I first raised this with Taunist over two weeks ago, he made the very fair point that we want to do this on an EU-wide basis. And I think that would have been a very powerful move if every single Russian ambassador was expelled from each of the 27 EU member states, and indeed from the EU's permanent representation in Brussels at the same time. However, that wasn't able to be achieved. I thought the Greeks were going to uh, expel the Russian ambassador a week or so ago. But I think at this stage, I think it's up to ourselves in Ireland to make that decision that it's gone too far. And yes, I do share the concerns. There are a number of Irish citizens living and working in Russia now. A number were also advised long before the conflict conflict broke out that they should leave but I think it's far more important that we have a man here Alan who has lied on national television he's lied to an Oireachtas committee and he's now putting out absolute propaganda on behalf of Vladimir Putin and castigating Ireland in the international and Russian press unfairly. Okay, let's get back to what's happening. Um, I think it's probably a little bit later on this morning that Oireachtas members are going to be demonstrating outside the embassy for obvious reasons. Do you think calls to get rid of them will gather momentum as a result of what's happening or can you give us any indication of the sort of numbers that are going to be there today? Well, there's over about two dozen Oireachtas members who are all part of the Irish-Ukrainian Parliamentary Friendship Group 
are meeting um, just early this afternoon. It's being coordinated by uh, Deputy Redman Smith, who's the convener of the Friendship Group, the TD from Calvin, and he's brought us all together and we're going to march in solidarity with all the Ukrainians, the over 5,000 Ukrainians who are living here, including on top of that, over 2,000 refugees have come, as well as everyone in the right-thinking world, to not just to continue to protest in our clearest clearest voice against this brutal war in Ukraine, but also many of us will be repeating the call for diplomatic expulsions, for Ireland to take a more proactive part, be it in terms of providing humanitarian aid, in terms of supporting the refugee effort and beyond. I certainly think every day that passes, more and more Iraqis members are taking the stance that the Russian ambassador should be expelled. And certainly what we're seeing a much quietening of is those very few but very worrying members of the Iraqis and the European Parliament who have tried to say this is somehow an equal conflict that is as much about NATO aggression as it is about Russian aggression. That's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. This is a brutal, bloody war of invasion and the sole aggressor is Vladimir Putin's Russia. Let me ask you about the refugee crisis that we are all facing as Europeans ourselves. We're talking in the region of maybe 100,000 plus coming to Ireland. Do you get the sense or the feeling in terms of what you are hearing and seeing within government circles that we may be overwhelmed by the numbers in terms of being able to provide them with the necessary supports? No, I don't think so, Alan, because I think this is about a coordinated European effort and this is where EU solidarity kicks in and I've never seen a response um, like this since possibly the fall of Ceausescu's Romania um, going back to that era in terms of public response, many people contacting me, offering rooms in their home, offering perhaps a holiday home or a rental property that they have. What we've seen so far is well over a million people have been displaced. This will, in true course, be the largest displacement of people in Europe since the Second World War. But the burden is being very acutely um, taken by Poland, Moldova, uh, Slovakia to an extent. And they've been doing it extremely, extremely powerfully in terms of receiving, processing refugees quickly. We've already taken quite a few, as I said, over 2,000 Ukrainians have come here since the end uh, of February, since the, the visa scheme was waived. Now, some of those are refugees, some of those are Ukrainians who have returned and much else, but we will be expected to take more. The Cabinet Subcommittee met last week uh, to iron out the initial plans. This will be a not just an all-of-government approach, but an all-of-society approach. The one thing to also add is the vast 99.9% of people coming here they don't want to be here. Mm. They don't want to leave their homes. They have literally been bombed out of their home. And I, I spoke to one uh, Ukrainian lady who's, who's living, actually not too far from me, who's living in Slane. Um, she's married to an Irish man and they've been able to get her, her father, her mother, her sister-in-law and her niece and nephew out of Ukraine. But ultimately, her brother, who is my age in his late 30s and works in a bank in Kiev, Unfortunately, he's been given a rifle and he has to stay and fight for it. Okay. Deputy, just before I let you go, and briefly, I just want to try and look at this from a political European perspective and what's going on at the moment in terms of sanctions. And there's no question that there is unity of purpose amongst member states and far beyond the borders of Europe when it comes to Russia. But that could fracture. And there's potential there for things to fall apart the longer this goes on, surely. Absolutely, but even from the outside, Alan, no one would have seen the unity of resolve on a European level that has taken place. We saw no opposition to sanctions from the likes of Hungary, who would have been seen to be much closer to Russia. Remember, they took the Sputnik vaccine Mm -hmm. back at the outbreak of COVID-19. We've seen Serbia, a strong ally of Russia, but a candidate country to join the EU, absolutely in lockstep when it comes to sanctions. This isn't ordinary times. This isn't something that people will debate. There is 
absolute unity of purpose and the focus really from an EU point of view at this stage is particularly on a country like Poland who's receiving so many refugees but also with the three Baltic countries Estonia, Lithuania and Latvia because if we allow Ukraine to fall and we don't respond strongly to what's happening in Ukraine Lord knows they could be next. Okay, we must leave it there. Uh, Deputy uh, Neil Richmond, spokesperson for the Gale spokesperson on European Affairs. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Now, welcome back. Let me bring you some of the comments we're getting this morning on Ukraine. Mark from Navin, you really have to wonder how Ireland is going to manage if we take in 100,000 refugees. Where will they all go? How will they be housed? How will our hospitals cope? It's a massive undertaking to take in so many, but hopefully it can be done properly. Eric from Dundalk, if we take any more refugees, it'll sink the country. We simply can't afford them and take any more. Tom from Trim, um, if we all do what we can to make sure these people who are fleeing Ukraine feel welcome here, it's the least we can do. If we had to flee Ireland, we would be hopeful that people in other countries would show us some kindness and understanding. Some of your comments there. Let's move on. Ireland will need to almost double the number of orthopaedic consultants to reach a national target set nearly 20 years ago, uh, as demand has increased significantly, according to the IHCA. The Hanley report, published in 2003, recommended that Ireland needed four orthopaedic consultants per 100,000 population. Today, there are still only 2.4 per 100,000. Joining us this morning is Martin Varley, Secretary-General of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Martin, thanks for joining us this morning. You know, if you look at the figures, it's almost laughable to think we are where we are two decades ago. Why is that the case? Good morning, Alan. Yes, indeed, it is, it is a shock that we are so far behind, considering the report recommended a doubling uh, 20 years ago or more. So why? I, I think there's, there's a number of reasons. Uh, the government, uh, over the successive governments over the last 10 years, haven't invested in health and our acute hospitals as needed. In fact, we went through a period uh, prior to 2000 of the health service management telling us we had too many beds and they weren't investing. Equally, while there was a very clear acknowledgement we needed to increase our consultant numbers, not enough was being done. And in fact, certain things were done which were uh, driving our highly trained specialists and doctors abroad. Uh, since 2012, when Minister James Riley introduced uh, discriminatory terms for new consultants, in fact, we've lost a lot of our highly trained specialists. We train more than enough um, specialists to provide care to our patients in Ireland, but uh, if you discriminate against those you're training, uh, you send them abroad into the arms of those who are more than uh, welcoming of them because we, try, we train very highly trained specialists. So that's problem number one. Um, so you combine the fact that we're not filling our posts. Uh, for example, in the northeast, a quarter of the posts, consultant posts, are actually uh, not filled as they should be. These are permanent posts. So that's a total of about 59 out of 228 posts. And it's across all specialties medical, surgical, diagnostics, psychiatry, and we know in child and adolescent psychiatry there's a, a particular problem we've mm-hmm. heard of it in the southwest of the country in Kerry, but there are two such posts in Cavan which can't be filled. Okay, let's so, call this for what it really is all about, and it's about money, presumably. They are not being paid the sort of uh, compensation that they should be getting for their expertise and what they can bring to the table. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? Yeah, in a nutshell, uh, it, it is that we're no longer competitive. We were competitive until the Minister of the Day introduced a 30% cut on new appointees. And if you do that in any walk of life, it's not surprising that one will run into difficulties in recruiting. It's a little bit like if you were in Drogheda with a business 
and you decide you want certain expertise, but you're going to tr- pay 30% less than you had heretofore and 30% less than the market, you will find that the expertise will drift off elsewhere. And that's what's happened with our highly trained specialists and doctors. And the fact of the matter is that the consultants come in for a lot of stake, as it were, and criticism from the public, saying they're overpriced, overpaid for what they do. But in reality, these individuals are, as you say, experts in their fields. They've studied long and hard to be able to do things that most of us can't do and are worth their money, surely. And I'm not a spokesperson for them, but I'm I'm just looking at it in the cold light of day in terms of what they do. Well, absolutely. I think you're right. These are like highly trained senior management. Uh, Effectively, you're talking about people who have trained in university for five, six years, have trained for another 10, 15 years to specialize so that they are specialists. So they're very much akin to senior management. And worldwide, uh, the the grade of a consultant specialist is seen as such. Um, Not only that, but in fact, I, I know the type of work to do. In Ireland, we have small enough teams compared with international teams. In hospitals, you might have a handful of people in a specialty or less. People are on call at night on a rota. They're on call on weekends on a rota, so you could be on one weekday at night as well as working your full day and on uh, one weekend in four or five. Well, as do nurses as well, in fairness, and they're at the front line of things and other health workers as well. But can we just maybe put things into perspective in relation to what we're talking about in terms of money? A consultant is paid what in this country? Now, I presume there's a a degree of... uh, you know, negotiation either side of a certain figure, but pick a ballpark figure that's reasonable. What would you think they should be paid or are being paid at the moment? Yeah, well, just on the last point, the, there's very few uh, healthcare workers who work uh, full days and full weeks who are actually on call as well. Uh, medicine is the exception in that regard in terms of doctors and consultants. And uh, when I say on call, I mean on call in addition to doing okay. their full working day. And they have to be recompensed for that, and that's fair enough. So let's talk yeah, about really. the, the what they earn. What will they get per year on average? Because I know it does fluctuate. Uh, the, the salary would have been in around uh, £180,000 plus uh, for the pre-2012 consultants, and we were able to recruit at that. Then Minister James Riley cut that by 30%, and that hasn't been rectified as yet despite uh, several years of ministers committing to reversing it and recognising it was a false economy. Okay, so the consultants then leave the country in order to make up that extra 30%, presumably? Well, a lot of them actually travel abroad to actually get a top-up fellowship specialist training, and this has been historically the case. They go to North America, they go to Australia and New Zealand, they go to elsewhere in Europe. So what we're often trying to do is to recruit them back Uh, from positions in North America and uh, Australia, which is probably paying them twice what we will offer them, even without the discriminatory salary cut. So we're we're really uh, fighting with our two hands tied behind our backs, trying to get people back. Uh, People have always come back from higher uh, salary zones uh, to work in Ireland, why they've got an affinity and they've got family here and they've trained here and they want to actually provide healthcare in Ireland. But Uh, you know something, Martin... I'm sorry for cutting across you because time's against us, but if you look at that salary of the pre-2012 of 180000 and look at it in the cold light of day in terms of what the average industrial wage is, or even a manager's wage in a relatively good company in this country is, it is a staggering salary, is it not? 
I think what you have to look at it in the context is there's a market for uh, highly trained specialists, as is a market for highly trained CEOs, etc. And uh, there's a scarcity. There's a worldwide scarcity of specialists and doctors. That's becoming a bigger and bigger problem, especially in the developed world. Now, we're losing our highly trained specialists. So basically, uh, the solution is if the government was to cease discriminating against the new appointees, and this is what we're asking them to do, uh, then we should be in a position to recruit and retain. But we're actually now on a cliff edge. We have uh, lived with this for the best part of uh, 10 years. And as I said, a quarter of the permanent posts in the Northeast can't be filled. And we're actually also facing into increasing numbers of retirement. Okay. So the Martin. issue here is providing timely care to patients. To do so, you do need consultants. We do need, need orthopedic surgeons. Uh, we cannot expect uh, to provide the service without the specialists. And we have something like 5,000 people on waiting lists in the Northeast waiting for a consultant outpatient appointment. And we have over 500 people waiting for surgery. Okay. So these are major problems. Patients are being left in pain and suffering. It doesn't happen in any other country. And we don't have governments discriminating against uh, consultants who are in scarce supply. Very good, Martin Varley. We must leave it there, General Secretary of the Irish Hospital Consultants Association. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Now, as we celebrate International Women's Day, whether deliberate or unconscious, bias makes it difficult for women to move ahead. And knowing that bias exists isn't enough. Action is needed to level the playing field. The International Women's Day theme, Break the Bias, aims to promote a gender-equal world, a world that's free of bias, stereotypes and discrimination, and a world that is diverse, equitable and inclusive. Joining us this morning as we celebrate the pivotal role that women play in society, business and politics, are Fianna Fáil Senator, Aaron Grehan, Sinn Féin TD, Imelda Munster, and for the Gales, Regina Doherty, leader of the Shannon. Thank you all for joining us. We'll come to you in a moment. But I think it's important that we recognise the establishment of a new group formed in County Meath to promote women in politics. The Meath Women's Caucus was officially launched yesterday to coincide with International Women's Day and consists of 14 female councillors in County Meath. The initiative aims to enhance female participation in local government and break down the barriers faced by women in politics. Chairperson of the newly formed group, Local councillor Maria Murphy outlined some of the work the caucus will carry out in the coming months. It's an honour for me, as chairperson of the Mead Women's Caucus, to warmly welcome you. The event is timely given tomorrow is International Women's Day. During 2021, the women councillors in Mead had a number of online meetings facilitated by Dr. Claire McGing and Lynn Hagen Mead, who were engaged by the council to work with us. Um, I'd like to thank Claire and Lynn for the professionalism in guiding us through the process to get to us to get to us to here today. Now, unfortunately, they couldn't join us either today because of other commitments, but we did extend them the invitation. Um, I'd like to acknowledge Robert again, Claire and Ailish and Mead County Council for their assistance, and I'd like to thank my um, women colleagues for engaging the process and for speaking so openly about their experiences. It's fair to say that my colleagues are ambitious for the caucus and have plenty of ideas for us to build on. This is really only the start of what's to come for future years and I think what we're going to build here now will benefit uh, the women councillors going forward for, for decades and generations even to come. Today at our monthly council meeting, a motion was unanimously adopted calling on Mead County Council to formally recognise the Mead Women's Caucus. The values of the caucus are collaboration, support, visibility and diversity. It will be fully inclusive and cross-party. 
the establishment of the Meet Women's, Women's Caucus is a positive development which will see us working together to encourage women to get involved in local politics. We look forward to the opportunity to engage with many women and, and groups in our communities to highlight the need for more female representation while working to remove the barriers holding women back from achieving their full potential and creating a space for informal mentoring and sharing of information. Targets have been set by government for an increased general um, balance among the local election candidates between the, the, the female participation and that. In Mead, we have 14 women councillors out of 40 members. This 35% rate of women councillors means that we are one of the local authorities with the highest gender balance. The challenge is not only to increase the percentage of women candidates who are elected, but also to keep them. We've seen an increasing number of women councillors and indeed Oireachtas members stepping back from public life or reducing their, say, change in their perspective on it for a variety of reasons. I find this sad in 2022 and it's something we need to deal with. Um, I think, like Jackie has mentioned, the uh, maternity leave issue which has been dealt with at a rock level and it does need to be dealt with at council level too. I think Minister Helen McEntee, was, was, she was, the work she did in that was, it started the ball rolling but there's a lot of other issues that we have to deal with as well. And that was uh, Councillor Maria Murphy there, chairperson of the newly formed group. Um, I want to thank LMFM reporter Mark O'Driscoll for that audio. Here we are, International Women's Day. Such a shame that it's only once every year. It should be every day that we celebrate what women bring to the table in this country and further afield. In studio, we're joined by Fianna Fáil Senator Aaron McGreen. Thank you so much for joining us Thank this you. morning, Senator. Uh, we also have Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster online and Senator Regina Doherty, leader of the Shannon Funagrail Centre online as well. Thank you all for joining us. Before we get into International Women's Day, I'd like just for a moment to reflect on what has been happening in Ukraine, because it strikes me over the past number of weeks that we've been listening to men in suits ruminating, pontificating and analysing, when in fact we should be listening to women, because the common denominator when it comes to war, any conflict, it is women who are the ones who have to pick up the pieces. It is women who have to bring the families together. And one only has to look at the pictures, watch the news reports, listen to the radio reports. It is women who are suffering. It is children who are suffering. It is men who are being left behind in order to fight. And we have to recognise that and understand what is going on from a woman's perspective. I listened to a very distressing report this morning on the BBC on the way up here, and it was a hospital where women who are some heavily pregnant, some in the early stages of pregnancy, who are going through some of the most traumatic experiences physically and medically as a result of what is happening in Ukraine. And their children equally are under incredible duress, are suffering physically and mentally. And I suppose from that perspective, um, Regina, I want to go to you first as a mother. Talk to me about what it must be like for a woman to be told that you have literally hours to pack a bag, get out of your house, close the door and leave. And the likelihood of coming back to seeing your house still standing is pretty slim. Good morning, by the way. Thanks. Good morning, Ellen. I have to be very honest with you. I can't imagine what it must be like. So I sit, you know, in my lovely office, in my, you know, my great job. I'm very blessed to have you know, a family that are all healthy and, you know, um, I, I honestly God, I can't imagine. Um, you talked this morning about the, the story that you heard. I can't get that little 11-year-old boy 
whose video we saw yesterday evening, who walked something like 600 miles on his own, crying with his passport in one hand and a telephone number written on his hand in Biro. And that was, you know, he was trying to get to a border. I can't imagine any parent having to try and hand their child away or send their child away because it's not safe where they are. And and I know you want to talk about, you know, the impact on women. And it does, obviously, you know, all of the caring duties tend to, you know, be with women. But I couldn't, and I have a 22-year-old son, I couldn't imagine leaving him behind to have to fight Mm -hmm. and not know whether I'd ever see him again. My husband, you know, I, I honest to God, and you are right, you come back to the, the logic that I doubt very much there were any women around the table, you know, with uh, Putin making the decision to uh, invade aggressively as he has done. And I can't even countenance that there could be women involved. Um, that's not to say maybe there aren't, but you, you certainly would have an entirely different set of diplomatic relations and discussions. They may not be fruitful, they may, you know, but they certainly would have longevity because no woman would ever choose to do what has happened uh, in Ukraine in the last eight or nine days. You just wouldn't. Senator uh, McGreen, your own thoughts on it? I think I agree absolutely with Regina. We can't even comprehend the colossal heartache that is and the the pain that's going on in Ukraine. Uh, you, you look at the faces of those women in the bunkers, they're giving birth in underground train stations and bunkers. Can't, I, can't I can't even imagine how difficult it is. And exactly what Regina said there, I can't even imagine sending my son or my daughter off to war. I'm, I'm, uh, your introduction, Alan, and listen to Regina, I actually have goosebumps because it's, we're sitting here and on such a, a privileged platform, we're all comfortable, we've all got beds to go to. Um, and you know, yes, there's you know, things wrong in Ireland and there's so much things that we need to change. But when you look at a world falling apart, falling down around them, and it is uncomprehensible and exactly what Regina said, I there I doubt very much that there's any women um sitting next to Putin Putin telling him not to do any of this, whether they're not able whether there's no women around at all or that they're not able to speak up because I really genuinely believe that no woman would use civilians as targets or it get get to a point that we're we're having this aggressive war and the one of the most the tragic tragedies of this is that the war will end through dialogue people are going to come back around that table and they're going to meet again and Ultimately, that's all that ever remains is a table with chairs around it, waiting for those chairs to be populated for dialogue and discourse. And all the loss and all the displacement and the hurt and the death and the mayhem will all come round to people filling those those seats at the table again and peace will come back. But at what cost? Imelda Munster... I think it's probably about perspective, understanding that we are somewhat privileged and for us to be whinging about the cost of petrol, the cost of this or the cost of the other. We are very privileged when you consider what is happening over there. Yes, Alan, when you look at the footage, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And I think it's it's fair to say that um, and that's not to take from the men that are staying on to fight. But women, I think it's fair to say that women and children are bearing the brunt of the the war, their whole world is turned upside down. They're walking into 
oblivion, if you, if, um, you could use that word. They don't know what's ahead, uh, what's going to happen, where they're going, all of the uncertainty, the trauma caused by walking for, for miles and miles and miles. And I've seen footage of elderly women walking for miles and you just knew women in their 80s that they just wouldn't be able for it. Um, I've seen another report about <coughs> women and children in underground shelters and a child terrified because of the rats there and the mother said, well, at least there's no bombs. I mean, when you get to that stage, you know, but just the total uncertainty of it all and having to leave behind their partner, their husband, their father, their brother, their son, and not knowing what's going to be there, how long it's going to go on, or whether they're going to reach the destination, whether their their sons and fathers and brothers that they're leaving behind are going to live through the war, you know, survive the war. It's 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 desperate. It's absolutely desperate, and it's terrifying, and it puts everything else into perspective, really. Okay, I, I want to move on from this topic, but before I do, I just want to, um, I suppose, very briefly discuss the the story of the day. It'll be the story of the week in the months to come, and that's the issue with refugees. And Regina is a former minister who would have been involved in the social side of things. Um, and I know that the government, the secretaries general of all the departments are meeting quite regularly in order to formulate some sort of strategy around this. But one gets the sense this is going to be an overwhelming task and there's a possibility it could go very wrong if we're not careful. I suppose that's why, first of all, the meetings happen, have to happen extremely regularly. Um, but I think what, if they're rooted in compassion um, and, you know, a, a humane response to the, the 1.7 million people that have left Ukraine so far, um, then I think we won't go far wrong. And yes, it might pose an imposition on Irish people, on Irish society and maybe on the Irish person. But I think you can hear collectively from three different political representatives today that in our hearts, we know what the right thing to do is, is to welcome these people. They don't want to be in Ireland or France or Poland. They want to be in their own country. And so we need to be welcoming um, both from our hearts perspective and our pockets perspective to make sure that they're as comfortable as they can be for the time that they're Mm -hmm. here. But to do internationally everything we can do to make sure that they can get back to their own country to get it rebuilt. And obviously that's going to take years. But have our hearts and our, our, our pockets open. The Department of Social Protection announced only this morning that they would treat all Ukrainian refugees as if they were Irish citizens from a social welfare perspective. You can see our colleges are going to welcome the younger people into the schools and into our third level universities and treat them as Irish citizens as opposed to treating them like international students, which would incur higher fees. These are all just, like, they're small things. They cost money. And I know, you know, it's, it's easy probably to be flippant to say we just add it to the bill that we have in the country already. We spent a lot of money on COVID in the last couple of years. But these are human beings. I can't imagine if we had 1.7 million people left Ireland in the last nine days, the impact that that would have on Irish life, Irish society and Irish family units. Like again, I, I find it very difficult to even try and comprehend that in my head. So the only thing I can make sure that we do is to open our hearts and open our pockets. And the 4,000 families have already offered refugees a place in their home shows the generosity of Irish people. And, you know, we will put up with a certain amount of inconvenience like the two euros at the petrol pump, nobody's happy about that. And I don't think people are actually, not to be disrespectful to you, I don't think people are whinging about it. They're just not happy about it. And, you know, nobody has two quid to be paying on a, a mm. litre of petrol these days. But we will put up with certain things to be that generous Irish society that we've always always been. We've always been open and, you know, good with our hearts and, and our money. Senator McGreen, do you think the government are up for the, the challenge when it comes to 
dealing with the huge numbers of refugees on the way? Absolutely. I think the government are up for the challenge, but I also think the Irish people are up for the challenge. You know, we've seen the outpouring of support all across the country. You know, we looked at late, late and Friday night, the amount of money that was raised. You know, Irish people are known per capita, actually, as the, as the most generous nation. Um, and I think we'll continue that. It's not going to be easy. And people are, you know, there's going to be, you know, queues of places, hospital hospital waiting lists will, will get bigger. But I think our hospitality, our camaraderie and our respect and tolerance for what is going on. Because as I said, we are really lucky to be living in a peaceful island, a welcoming island. And it is, we all have to row in and make that, you know, the Cade Mida Falcha that we are. Imelda Monster, I, su- I suppose we should really remember our own history going back way then to the 1800s when we had to leave for different reasons. But nonetheless, we found it difficult and we didn't really get that Cade Mila Falcha either, did we? No, and at the time, many left in their bare feet, you know, mm-hmm. with just um, a small bag over, over their shoulder. Um, and you had to make your way wherever you landed and, you know, start from scratch again. Um, but yes, of course, we have to welcome refugees. They're coming from such a traumatic um, event that just took hold, you know, out of the blue in their, their country and their whole lives have been have seen upheaval and worry and stress and despair. But to be perfectly honest here, I'm concerned, and I was actually given this thought at the weekend, you're concerned that when they get there, how we cope, you know, as regards all the practical things, because you don't want them to come with all the trauma that they've endured and to endure more of that, if you like, you know, we've, how we're going to look at housing, our health system, getting children into schools, you know, the schools that are full to the brim, housing there isn't, you know, they're, 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 we're in a housing crisis, a housing emergency, um, and people dealing with the trauma of war and mental health services, all of that. And your, my biggest fear is that when they do come, that we, we won't be able to do do that and it'll add to their trauma you know and that's that's a real worry and concern from a practical level um, of course we want to offer them refuge and we have to but how the government are going to actually manage that that they're not causing further anxiety and despair to these people that's that's the big issue how we're going to cope with the sheer volume of okay. people knowing what we know you know, the, the housing emergency, crisis in our health system, how schools are going to cater for those young children, um, the, the trauma of what they've experienced, how they're going to get counselling for that, and all of the supports that these refugees are going to need. My biggest fear is that, I hope to God we can do it, but my biggest fear is that, you know, we've seen before the way refugees are sometimes treated, you know, yes, as regards course. services and that. And we have to we have to be honest okay. about that. And that's my fear. Right, very good. I want to, I want to press on. Uh, Regina, I want to go to you. Um, Ireland in 2022, is it a country receptive to the needs, requirements and wants of women? And how have we progressed, for example, since you got into politics, not just from a political perspective, but in terms of Ireland, you know, encouraging women, women, encouraging them to flourish in business, providing them with what they require in terms of medical 
social, whatever it may be? I would say it's a story of two halves, Alan, because if you ask anybody, they would absolutely tell you that, of course, the country and that being the offices of the state and all of the agencies of the state have an ambition to make sure that this is a country where there is an equality of opportunity, where no woman gets left behind, where we provide all of the things that you've just described from a healthcare perspective, education. Oh, you know, but the reality is very different. Like the reality is, is that we have one of the highest levels of domestic and sexual violence against women or women across the European Union. The reality is, until a couple of weeks ago, we didn't even have a menopause clinic in Ireland and 51% of us are women that have to go through the menopause whether we like it or not. The reality is that something like endometriosis was only recognised um, three or four weeks ago. The reality is, is that women who suffer from severe um, morning sickness for the nine months of their pregnancy can't even get access to drugs. Like The reality and the ambition are very different. The equality of opportunity is that we have women around a cabinet table fighting with other women for places as opposed to fighting for some of the men's places. You know, we have a closed mindset that women sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that they have to compete with other women, whether it's in business or politics or academia. And then the country flays when we say, right, we need to reserve special places for women because organically, you know, the advancement is not happening. We have a very unequal society. And really, and I don't mean to be trite, either one of two things has to happen. We either need more women at decision-making tables so that the volume of the voices are equal to the men, or we need men to help us. And that well, hasn't really happened. Well, it hasn't happened, and presumably no. it hasn't happened because there's men there who do not value the opinion of women's, whether it be at the table, the negotiating table in politics or in business. And and on that particular uh, issue, um, I want to ask you, Senator McGreen, do you feel valued as a woman, not just in politics, but valued as a woman? Depending on the conversation you're having, um, you know, there's a, 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 a lower level. I remember when we were building our house um, and, you know, the tradesmen wouldn't speak to me, even though I'm a plumber's daughter, I'm a, trades, <laughs> I'm a tradesman daughter. That's, that's and, I, and I know how to navigate myself around a hardware store and I know my way. But because I was a woman, my opinion was, well, we'll ask, we'll ask himself. Mm-hmm. So... It depends on the on the level you're at and depends on where you're at. And I have felt um completely segregated um in at politics, a at, at government level by some by some. I've also felt that in other workplaces. I felt that on different occasions throughout my life. Has that and been I deliberate particularly within politics, or is it just the behaviour of individuals who don't necessarily recognise that they're doing it? I think there was probably a little bit of politics involved in it. If it was if it was in a political sphere, I mightn't have been the same party as them. Um so, you know, keep keep her down and keep her keep her over there. Um so that is you know, this will happen us. But I think we have to take the positive on that. We have really good women and we have really strong vocal women who are really working. And I think because of that, we have seen big changes. And for and today we have a new women's health strategy um, being announced by, by Minister Stephen Donnelly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, that is to the forefront of this government. We have been working, opening those menopause clinics, opening the endometriosis um, clinics. And for me, who suffers from endometriosis, that has been something that I've been working on for so long, pushing this condition, teaching people about this condition. And it's because there's women there speaking on their own lived experience that change becomes. And I think we have to keep on encouraging each other. And it's not about 
you know, putting putting down. It's about that gender equality and recognizing the vulnerabilities in each gender and all genders. And because until we start challenging the societal norms that you know boys don't cry, girls whatever we make the dinner or we like nice shiny things, that that those norms need to those norms need to be challenged, and those gender stereotypes need to change. And I think they are changing, but I think we need our our our, our you know our brothers, our friends, our, our fathers and our husbands and partners to come in and row in and, and, and talk about those vulnerabilities because you know we, we all have them. Yeah. And that's that is gender equality to me. Imelda Monster, let me bring you in there and just talk a little bit about politics and the participation of women in politics. And thankfully it is increasing, but it's not near at the level that it should be in order to get that what I would call political equilibrium within the political sphere in order to get a a reasoned and a robust look at what we should be doing. But it is nonetheless very difficult for a woman, particularly a woman who has children with their partner and they are the primary caregiver for those children. I know things and the dynamic has shifted that there is a sharing of roles there, but nonetheless it's ultimately the woman who has to take care of that. And until we arrive at a situation where it's easy for a mother to leave her children knowing that they'd be well cared for. They're not that enthusiastic about getting involved in politics, are they? No, it can be very tough. I remember when I got elected first to Loud County Council in 2004, um, my children were seven and, and three, and it was very tough trying to manage it. But at the minute, there's just... 37 TDs out of the 160 TDs that are women. So it's, it's over, I think it's just over 23%. Mm-hmm. And local councillors, only 25% of local councillors are women, you know, and therefore you have that dis- disproportionate representation. Um, but you, you have obstacles for women that could be addressed if the government were to address them. And one of those is childcare. It's totally unaffordable and even inaccessible for many. Childcare is an absolute disaster. Women would have to pay the equivalent of a second mortgage or the other choice of leaving the work workforce. But but sorry and for interrupting you there, Amelda. Mm. That hasn't changed. I mean, mm. I'm whatever, 51, 52 years mm. of age, and I went through that with my own children who are now growing up. And it was the same back then as it is yeah. today. So why hasn't it changed? I'm not. I'm not blaming you, but no, I'm just no, asking the question. That, yeah, yeah, that's. I mean, the political will isn't there, and that's what that no woman left behind rally on Saturday was for. They were looking for public and affordable childcare model. That's what they were looking for. You know, along with other aspects like women's refuge, um, domestic violence against women. There's there's parts of this country county that don't even have any shelters for women. There's lots of things that haven't been addressed um, by, by governments, successive governments and they're the barriers that hold, hold women back. But childcare is a very, very obvious one accessible, affordable childcare and that, that does prevent. Another thing that prevents women from um, getting involved in politics is the way that the doll is set up. The times the voting, I mean we've often voted at one o'clock in the morning and I have colleagues that have young families and they live down the country. And, I, you know, whilst I was on the council when my children were younger, I was able to manage because I was local, local. But there, you have people travelling, you know, 200 miles home with children and it's, it's totally unfair. And of course it would put people off and maybe there's method in their madness. 
to deter women because if they really were wanted to be constructive about this and have equality across the board, they'd address these issues. Okay, well, well, let me ask you, Regina. Let me just let me ask you, Regina. Regina, is it going to take a woman to initiate change to benefit women? Is that where we're at on this? No, Alan, because one woman is no use. Sorry, that's not probably not fair. It's about the volume of voices. I can genuinely tell you, I sat around a cabinet table where there were 18 people. Four of us were women. You feel isolated. You feel like you want to bring up something that has an emotional attachment or an element to it. But you're actually concerned about what kind of mood is in the room as to how you'll be received. And so unless there's a comfort in the knowledge that nine of the 18 people around the table think the same way as you do, then you don't have the volume of the, you know, of what's needed to enforce something that would be to the betterment of entire society. And Imelda is right into a, a sense. But here's the rub with this. The vast majority of people around the table, who, and this is not just the cabinet table, it's every business table, it's every, go to any Secretary General and his entire management team, the vast majority of our depo- departments are populated by men. The problem is, is that when you don't have a volume uh, of people speaking the same kind of language, well, then they get isolated. You so so what are you saying that are we still harking back to that famous quote by Albert Reynolds when he said, sure, that's women for you. Have we moved at all from that? We, we know that organically women are not going to get to the magic 45, 55, 50, 50 percent at every table in the country that's needed. And so therefore it needs to be forced. And the problem with forcing it is, is that in order to make it equal, we need to displace men. So we need men to make the decision to displace themselves so that we can have an equal society. And until we do, you have a small number of women fighting for a very large cohort of women that isn't actually making the difference fast enough to satisfy any of us. And so there's no point. And what happened, well, unfortunately, and maybe Imelda was there on Saturday, I didn't attend. What the Women's Council did on Saturday was divide women. They marginalised a certain voices from certain women, which is never going to get us to reach the pinnacle of 50-50 if we don't stand together. Okay, can you just explain so, that to us in terms of the marginalisation? What, what specifically are you talking about there? The fact that uh, government ministers weren't, weren't invited? It, it, it's, not about, it's not about a platform because as Erin has said, we're very privileged that we already have a platform, whether it's in the Shannon and the Dáil on your radio station or others. And any of us can write op-eds to the papers, something that probably, you know, a person at home in, in Navan or, or Drogheda is not going to do as a matter of course. So we already have a privileged platform. But we divided and excluded, the National Women's Council divided and excluded women last Saturday. Now, maybe that's the reason why there was only 300 people uh, attended the rally in the, in the instance on Saturday. But if we divide and exclude an already minority society to try and get equality, well, then, you know what, I'm sure the lads, and I don't be disrespectful to you, Alan, I'm sure the lads are laughing their hats off as they were never going to get organised to be able to challenge. We need the might of all women working together. To, to take on the long list of things that Imelda and Aaron can tell you that are wrong in this country. But it's not just to United that we need to do it. It's to actually challenge the male consensus that really does drive policy in this country. And we'll only do it if we do it united. Can I ask about one particular issue that has surfaced as a result, I suppose? Well, it became front and centre in relation to uh, the COVID pandemic. And that was the spike in the numbers of women who were reporting violence against them in the home domestic violence. It saddens me, it disturbs me that this is still going on, that we have not managed, number one, to provide facilities, shelters, supports for women who find themselves in this situation, who want to leave but can't leave. And number two, that it is, you know, pervasive within Irish society. I mean, Imelda, it it is disturbing in 2022 that this, this is still going on. 
it's disgraceful, Alan, to be perfectly honest. You know, um, we a government, and that's what they're there for. They're there to to look after the people and protect the people. But um, and we need to ensure that all women who are suffering from domestic violence or any other form of violence or exploitation have somewhere to go. They've, there's counties in this state that there's still no places, no shelters for women. And this has been flagged up time and time again. And this, imagine your despair. And particularly during COVID, when, you know, you, you couldn't move and everything was closed and it was hard to, you know, move from 5K from your house or whatever um, with the restrictions, complete lockdown. I mean, they literally had nowhere to go. And even now, when we've come out of the pandemic, there are still counties in Ireland where if a woman is terrified in her own home, and it's the hands of an abuser, she has nowhere to go. What does that say about a government? You know, to use the word equality and women have their place in society, that means nothing if the government doesn't give it teeth. Okay, Erin, let me bring you in there, and I just want to ask you, have you had any approaches from individuals who have found themselves in that particular position? Um. I'm on the board of Endog Women's Aid, so I'm, you know, I'm very, very aware of the women that Endog Women's Women's Aid have to turn away um, annually, and thousands of women and turn um, them away to where? Back to where they came from to be to beaten different again. Supports, different supports to try and, and try and help them in 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 as best we can. But I think Imelda might have missed uh, the press the, the announcement, the government announcement there a couple of weeks ago on the extra refuges because this government is working on these issues. In I wish it was done. I wish it was faster. I wish it was, it was, you know, I wish our whole society would change, that we would need these refuges. And, and, and I would put it to the men listening today to call out because we have the twitching curtains attitude, you know, what goes on behind the door. We know the rumours in our, in our towns and villages. Oh, well, they beat up their wife. Or he is a record. He is a you know bit of a reputation for a bit being a bit of a bully towards his wife, and we don't call it out because it's a classic Irish thing of keeping the door closed. So let's go and prevent this. Call it out, everybody, and have the courage and the space to call out this okay, violence. Okay, I, I want to come back to this, but we need to take a break. There, we'll be right back. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Now, welcome back. Just prior to the break there, we were talking about violence against women and what is being done and what needs to be done. But I wanted to bring you in there, Regina, and talk a little bit about how that violence and that behaviour towards women permeates down to younger women. And I know myself talking to my two daughters that what they have experienced socially is just reprehensible and it's almost the norm in society today, the manner in which younger males treat women of the same age. What the hell is going on with men in this country? Or what is going on with our attitudes towards women? Yeah, you'd have to wonder, if I could just respond to something that Amelda said, because she may not be aware of it. Um, well, she's absolutely right. We have nine counties that have no shelters whatsoever for women fleeing violence. Uh, one of the last memos I brought to Cabinet, Alan, in May 2020, was off the back of a request from Safe Ireland um, and we supplied uh, emergency legislation to give three months funding for rent and a deposit for women fleeing, um, you know, households. No, there's nowhere to rent though, Regina, that's the problem, the housing crisis, people can't get property. Sorry, if I could just finish, if that's okay, Amanda, sorry. There was at the time, because we worked with Airbnb, I don't know if you remember, our entire hospitality system collapsed and we had thousands of um, households that were being rented out by Airbnb that were then vacant. 
And so Safe Ireland, myself, Charles Flanagan and Airbnb worked together um, so that we could bring that memo to Cabinet in May. Now, subsequently, Minister Heather Humphreys, who took over from me, has made that a permanent feature. Okay. Um, and so it was something to address the issues of what were going to be the rising uh, reports of domestic violence because we did make everybody stay at home. Okay, well, well let's, let's just deal with that. Yeah, where, where do we change attitudes? Is it at home? Yeah. Is it in the school? Where is it? You know, the, we're, we know we're constantly told, and I, I say this respectfully because some of my own ministers have said this, you know, we have to get parents, mammies, to teach our boys in the schoolyard, you know, how to be respectful to women. I have four children, Alan. I've never taught them to be anything but respectful. I don't know any woman, any mother, and you have three of us here, that would ever dream of teaching your boys to be any way disrespectful to another woman. So I don't know what happens as our young men grow older and the banter that we saw displayed by the two Johnnies a couple of weeks ago as being acceptable and norm. I don't know where that comes into it because it's, it's not funny and it's not acceptable. And to demean our young women, for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what they're wearing, it doesn't matter what they're doing, they don't need to be labelled by boys and young men for banter, because that then does feed into a kind of a misogynistic culture in certain aspects of society, where men feel they have an entitlement over women's bodies, where men feel they don't need to ask for consent. And, like, I really don't know, other than maybe having educational programmes around consent um, and trying to teach younger people at an earlier age how you respect each other. And Aaron talked about those social norms. Maybe they need to be broken down. But I don't know any mother in the country that teaches their children to be disrespectful. Well, well let me bring Imelda in there. Imelda, do you think that stems from social media? Does it, do you think it stems from people watching pornography? What is it? I mean, are we objectivising women or I, what? I think that, that is certainly a part of it, Alan, to be perfectly honest. And I was just thinking of that... Um, as you were speaking there, it is definitely a part of it um, and the access to it um, and from a very young age and, you know, videos um, taken, inappropriate videos taken and passed on through WhatsApp or, you know, any of the other uh, social media sites. um, That's very, very prevalent and it's prevalent in particular to women to humiliate them, to... Uh, you know, embarrass them, all that sort of thing. But again, it's you have to start when ch- children are very young, you know, both in the home and the school, the education system, and men and women need to work together to put a stop to this. But certainly, I honestly think, and we're doing work at the moment with the online media um, safety regulation bill, um, there, certainly social media has played a part in this and you know you have I, I don't even know if sometimes young men realise the effect that it has on women what they do you know um, it's it's out of control at this stage Okay Imelda so, time is against me here I want to leave the final words here with um, Senator Aaron McGrann uh, Green I beg your pardon Senator as a mother of four children four yeah how, how do you manage and I don't mean that in a condescending way because I understand days. how difficult <laughs> politics is and even I couldn't manage it. Some days you're winning and some days you're losing um, and some days you feel like a good mother and some days you feel like a really bad mother and a bad partner. But, um, you know, this is something that I love. I am. Ap- this is something that I absolutely wanted to do since I was a child. Um, I love my job. Some days my family do suffer 
because I'm gone, I won't be home until late night. And does that tear you emotionally? Does Absolutely. that question wh- what you're doing? Absolutely. When I have my youngest crying at me in the morning, don't go away, don't go away. Um, Dublin's closed today, mommy. Um, that breaks your heart. But, it, you know, um, my children know that that their mother goes out and represents the people of Loudoun the peop- and people and women of Ireland and men of Ireland um, in Dublin every single day. And I have the, those those best wishes. But I also want to, just on that gender-based violence, social media has just been an extra platform. You know, it, it has been around. I grew Forever. up and, I grew yeah. up and, and grew, went out way before camera phones and way before a social media. And I can tell you, I could tell you a few things off radio that which might shock you well, we'll have that talk <laughs> off radio now but Erin McGrahan uh, Imelda Munster and Regina Doherty thank you so much for joining us this morning Alan Cantwell on LMFM now welcome back our crime spot this morning is brought to you by Gartha Claire Murphy from Trim Gartha Station uh, Claire good morning you're very welcome to us on this International Women's Day let's get right to it and go to Kells on the 28th of February some criminal damage there that's correct, Alan. Uh, Kells Gardaí investigated an incident of criminal damage whereby electronic gates on the premises were damaged on Monday night, February 28th, into Tuesday morning, March 1st. The incident occurred between the hours of 10.30pm and 6.30am in Drake Rath, Carlinstown area. Anybody who may have been in the area and noticed any suspicious vehicles or persons are asked to please contact Kells 692 Oh dear, I think... one 666 Sorry, Alan. Sorry, you just broke up there momentarily. It's fine. We, we, we'll uh, pass out those informations towards the, the back end of the programme. Let's go to um, Kells and stay in Kells on the 3rd of March, a burglary there. That's quite Kells, Gardaí, again, investigate a number of burglaries which occurred around the Kells district. The burglaries occurred in the Kelsite area of Bonny between 5.30pm and 6.30pm. The Tullestown area of at the ball between 5.45 and 6.40pm. The Mainham area of Kells between 7.30pm and 8.30pm. And the Balgate area of Kells between 10pm and 10.30pm. Anyone who may have information which could assist Gardy with these investigations have asked please contact Kells Garda Station 046928020 or the Garda Health Confidential Line 1800666111. And Summer Hill then, 3rd and 4th of March, burglaries there. Yes, Gardy here in Tremor investigated a number of burglaries which occurred in the Summerhill area on Thursday and Friday evening last, the 3rd and 4th of March. Two houses were broken into in Aher, area of Summerhill, on Thursday between 7.30pm and 9pm. The third burglary was on Friday the 4th of March and it occurred between 7.25 and 7.32pm, a short period of time there in the New Road area of Summerhill Village. In each of these burglaries, either a door or window in the house was forced open. Anyone who may have been in the area during this time knows any persons or vehicles acting suspiciously or has guns at Gardaí here in Trim on 046 Okay, burglary at the kitchen in Dundalk then on the 3rd of March. Yes, Gardaí and Dundalk are investigating a burglary at the kitchen restaurant at Hill Street, Dundalk, between 3.50am and 4 5am on Wednesday into Thursday morning the 3rd of March. Entry was gained to the premises by the suspects by breaking the glass in the front door of the premises. There was cash stolen during this burglary. Anyone who may have any information which could assist Gardaí with investigations are asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 9388400. Now then on the 4th of March was some criminal damage there to St Oliver Plunkett's Church in Black Rock. 
Yes, guardians and Dock are investigating criminal damage to St Oliver Plunkett's Church in Black Rock Village overnight, Friday night, the 4th of March, into Saturday morning, the 5th of March, between the hours of 8pm and 10am. There were three side windows of the church damaged during this incident. And anyone who may have any information that could assist Gardaí are asked to contact Dundalk Garda Station on 042 93 Let's go to Betty's town now there and an appeal for a missing person. Yeah, the public have been asked to help Gardaí trace the whereabouts of a 16-year-old boy missing from County Meath for the last four days. Callum McGill has been missing from Betty's town since Friday the 4th of March and was last seen around 9.30pm. When last seen, he was wearing a black jacket and black tracksuit bottoms. He was he is described as being five foot five inches tall, of slight build and short brown hair and blue eyes. Anyone who may have information on Callum's whereabouts are asked to contact Ashburn Garda Station on 01 8010600 or again the Garda Confidential Line on 1800-666-111. Now the census is coming up. The next census is to take place on the night. 3rd of April. There is an obligation on us all to complete the census and each household has to complete and return the census form. Over the next few weeks, Census Ireland staff will be calling to our homes. They will be easily identifiable and they will carry ID. They will be wearing high-vis jacket or bib. They will call between the hours of 9am and 9pm and they will never look for entry to our homes. If you are in doubt in relation to any caller to your home, ring your local Garda station or ring 999. There we must leave it. Garda Claire Murphy from Trim Garda Station. Thank you so much for joining us on the programme this morning. Coming towards the end of the programme, let me bring you one or two comments just before we leave it. Marait from Drada. I think it's important to educate boys from a young age to respect women. Roisin, I think young teenage boys have too easy access to content. That's inappropriate. And they think that it's the norm when it comes to relationships. Parents should be controlling access to internet sites. And Geraldine from RD, I think your speaker was right. If more women were in charge of countries, we probably wouldn't have as much conflict. We've got to leave it there till tomorrow, same time. This is Alan Cantwell saying a very good morning to you and thanks to Chris Murray and Controls and Marie Kearns who produced. Till tomorrow, same time. Good morning. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie 